Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I am Ulrich Marcel, the founding host of the podcast. I've been crewing up on sets for over 10 years. I've worked um, on lots of movies. Uh, I made movies uh, either as a producer or a director. I don't know. I say a dozen. I don't know. I guess that's about fair. Um, and I'm just finishing up my first feature film as a writer director called The Alternate. I'm going to do my impersonation of Ulrich, um, but I'm going to do it as my intro. Hi, I'm Liz, like whatever. Um, I've done some, <laughs> done some things. I've made some stuff. Um, okay. Um, I am Liz. I'm a writer, director, producer, and casting director with two features under my belt. I'm also a former film critic and current distribution consultant who used to manage the creative distribution initiative at Sundance. Yeah, Matt Enlow would give me all kinds of shit if he was listening to this because he's always like, you gotta be more confident. You gotta be more proud of your stuff. Like you've done all these things. That is good like, You're so good. You know, don't, don't like come off as like, Oh, I've not done very many things. Like, look at all the things you've done. You're a professional. He always says that. So well, thanks, he's going to listen to this. I think he listens to us. I think so. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. But this week <laughs> we have another episode featuring the film Jacob's wife uh, because Jacob's wife, uh, which has, as we all know, Barbara Crampton in it, also has Larry Fessenden, um, Larry Fessenden, hero of film. He's an indie horror legend. He's directed nine horror features, including Wendigo, Habit, Beneath, and Depraved, and many segments for films such as ABCs of Death. He's acted in over 100 projects, which is like insane, and produced over 80 projects. And um, he's fairly well known as like the mentor producer of Ty West who um, gave Ty his first shot and has produced a number of Ty's films. So we talked to Larry about independent film. I indulge him in a question about my own projects because I was selfish and did it. Um, after the interview, don't go away because we'll have an, another installment of You've Got Mail and a special soap dish featuring AJ Starzak's upcoming short film, My Monster and I. And we're actually doing this, I think, for the first time in a long time, is that we're supporting a crowdfunding video and campaign. Uh, so um, check that out. And without any more pontification, here's our conversation with Larry. So one of the things we do on our show, Larry, is we start with rapid fire questions about, um, you know, a certain project. In this case, it'll be Jacob's wife. So I'm going to start. Uh, could you give us the elevator pitch for Jacob's wife? Um, Middle-aged marriage suffers a, a, a shock to the system when the wife encounters a supernatural force in a small town. Uh, how many days did you shoot? Oh, good Lord. I can't remember. Maybe 18. And, you know, I know that you're an actor on this and not necessarily a producer or a writer, but um, do you have any idea of what the rough budget was? No, but I mean, I'm sure it was, you know, nowadays you make movies like this for half a million or so. How long did you personally spend working on the film um, in its entirety? I believe I was in Mississippi for a month. It was the month before COVID. It was uh, all of February and I got back on the first and there was sort of talk of some kind of a pandemic starting. So, you know, it was really sweet to be able to make a movie uh, before uh, the lockdowns. So I felt very blessed. And then do you remember how big the crew was on the shoot? Well, actually, considering I make films at different levels, but I've made very small films, it seemed more sizable. There was a two or three, three or four. Yeah, it, it seemed sizable. I don't know, 50 people. Compared to all the other projects you've been a part of, how difficult was this one? It was, uh, you know, it's funny when you get down to talking about making a movie, you talk about things like the weather, you know, it was cold. Uh, <laughs> it was noisy. It was rainy. Um, but uh, the bottom line is that it was a very warm group. Uh, Travis is lovely. It's important how your director is in terms of the leadership that affects the mood of everybody. He was very collaborative, very humble, good energy. And then Barbara, of course, was the producer as well as the actress. So she just created a very family atmosphere. Uh, and we, we had a beautiful house that we stayed in across from the crew house. So there was a sense of a little village and you could walk to the only restaurant in town was the Mexican restaurant. So it was just a very nice 
experience um, with a couple of dramas as any movie has. Oh, Good I want to ask about the drama, but I won't. Unless... No, certainly okay. not. <laughs> I'll never tell. I'm just curious, like, you know, you've got this, this huge career, you've produced like 80 movies, whatever, all this stuff. Um, but like, how do you get involved with a film like this? Like, do you audition? Like, do people just reach out to you and say, hey, we're going to cast you in this role? Like, how does it work? Well, in this case, uh, first of all, it's funny because my career, well, what I'm saying is that I was invited to be in a movie called You're Next. And I, I believe that historically that was Barbara's return to uh, genre cinema. Uh, I think she raised her kid and she was sort of out of the business for a while. So I didn't see her there, but I was always aware of Barbara Clanton because of, of course, uh, Reanimator and her other earlier work. So um, I was aware of her from that. But then I was in a film called We Are Still Here by Ted Gagan, which was produced by Travis. And in that case, Barbara and I did act together. Uh, I was sort of a secondary character and I came into her world. So we were already pals and she sent me this script some years ago and said, I'm thinking of doing this and maybe you could be uh, Jacob. And I was very flattered that she would think of me for a role like this, especially because it's a little outside of my usual genre element of being kind of a scruffy badass. You know, I liked that I would be a priest. So um, that was very sweet. And then I know that she spent a couple of years trying to figure out how to get it made and finance it and so on. And then eventually she called. So the answer is no, I didn't audition. Uh, I think they knew me. And I have a strange thing in this industry is that I'm not, I don't really have an agent or anything. So you just have to reach out to me and maybe something will work out. I, I do audition for real movies, which is to say bigger movies. Um, but at this level, People usually just call you and say, are you around? Would you be able to find some time to do it? Leap of faith. You know, I didn't do a reading. Maybe I was going to be terrible. (laughs) (laughs) I doubt it. I doubt it. Um, What was the most challenging aspect of the performance um, in the film? I don't know. I find acting sort of scary because you have to learn all those lines. (laughs) But uh, once you're in it, I um, I really enjoy it. And uh, so what I'm sort of saying is every day is a challenge. You have to concentrate. You know, it's not like, you know, if you're the director, you're just watching other people work and (laughs) you can sort of have an opinion or two. Uh, But when you're acting, you really have to be on your game because you're also supporting the other person's work. But I can say that working with Barbara is effortless. She's a real professional. We'd had a lot of laughs, uh, even when it was a serious scene. There's a scene when I come in and she's, I mean, I don't think I'm giving too much away. Anyway, she's licking blood off the floor and I'm just completely appalled. And I said, oh my God, Barbara, what are you doing? Or whatever. And, and uh, I have a fake tooth uh, that I was wearing in the movie. And I, <laughs> I was so hysterical. I spat it across the room and we just were in complete stitches. So uh, nothing was terribly difficult. We have fun things like driving scenes. There's all kinds of strange technical things you have to, accomplish in uh, in movies uh, and the other thing is that i had this one costume the whole damn movie and i looked very uh, plump and that was very difficult for my vanity but what are you gonna do be an actor <laughs> what is it like for you like having so much experience behind the camera you know and then when you're in a situation where you're just in front of the camera i mean like does your whole feeling about it change or is it just like, Oh, this is another role I can play. Like, how does it, how's it, how's it like for you? Well, I like that you put it that way. Cause that's ultimately what it is. You're really the whole point, at least the way I like to look at it is you're all there in service to the movie. And the movie is this strange thing that presumably the director knows what that is and the producer, but you're all just serving uh, this project. You're trying to be helpful to get it done in, by, by listening to each other, by making suggestions when they're needed. Um, and that's your job, whether you're the actor or the prop person or whoever. So you, you start to form allegiances with different people on the set, from the makeup person to the prop person. And, you know, you're like, you know, I don't mind. I'll hold the gun. You know, one thing I don't like to do is let go of my props while I'm working. I just want to keep it because it's what the character has a continuity with it. And sometimes that means the prop person gets nervous because, you know, so they're just those little nuanced things every day that you have to deal with. Same with the costume. I like to just wear my costume. Uh, so um, as for, you know, the bigger things, there was a 
point at which Travis was talking to the DP um, and, and they couldn't decide where to put the camera. And I could tell he just wanted it centered. And I said, Travis, what would Stanley do? Meaning Kubrick, who is very famous for his uh, centered shots. And, and Travis was so gratified by that, that I just gave him this little bit of context in which to stand by what he wanted instinctually. And he was able to say to the DP, you know, I really just want to do it this way. And he gave me a t-shirt that said, what would Stanley do uh, as a gift? Um, so those are the times when you feel like you have enough experience that you can maybe speak up, even though you're out of your lane. I mean, I'm just the actor. But I don't mind doing that. People kind of know that I'm bossy pants. And uh, as long as you do it in a measured way when it's helpful, uh, I think, you know, uh, that, that you're in service to the movie. And you also mentor a lot of filmmakers. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how how you transitioned from or like where that came about. Did it come about as uh, I'm having trouble formulating questions. Uh, did it come about of um, your role as a producer and kind of a natural transition from that? Or is it something that you've always wanted to do? Where's the joy in, in mentorship? <laughs> That's a great question. Where is the joy? No, the joy is simply um, appreciating people who are artists or have an artistic impulse and trying to figure out how to help them put that forward. And um and that's, listen, that's the only reason I'm a producer. I just took that title because very often I'm the reason that somebody was able to make a movie by saying, you know, you gotta, you gotta fight for your idea or maybe, you know, I don't even claim to raise the money. Uh, it, I do different things as a producer, but all of it is just the idea of providing um, a, a springboard for somebody to make their first movie, you know, one of their first efforts uh, to just be a sounding board and and then help them along. And then, you know, that sounds all very vague. Well, sometimes then you get down to like, you should work with this DP because you're trying to match make. You're saying, I think you would really like um, working with this cameraman because there's camera woman, because they, uh, they're really loose with a handheld. And it sounds like you care about performance. So maybe you guys would work together well. Um, so it's, it's a lot of matchmaking and just sort of seeing opportunities and then reminding them why they're doing it, which is to be true to themselves, which is what's going to make any movie special. If it's, um, you know, I'm not in the business of conceiving of a commercial product that's maybe out of my wheelhouse, you know, to figure out what the audience wants. And that's like selling ketchup. I'm, I'm more interested in something that's very, very specific to the team that's assembled and that will have a resonance. Going back to what you're talking about before, like how you get approached for acting roles that people just call you up and ask you, you know, often to do these things. Well, what makes you say yes in that situation where it's not something like for a big movie that you're going into audition, but it's just somebody who's reaching out to you directly and saying, hey, like I want you in this movie for this role. If I don't have to fly, then I'll do it. And if it's a few days, I'll do it. You know, I. I'm not really kidding either. <laughs> uh, I um, But it, it's really everything, all my answers are going to be the same. If I feel somebody is really committed to something for a personal reason, I mean, it, and it has to appeal to me to some degree. Um, and if I feel I can be helpful uh, and if it's something different, you know, that was what was fun about Jacob's wife. It was a bigger commitment than I'm used to. And I did have to fly, uh, but I also got to play a priest, which I thought was interesting. And um, and I love Barbara and Travis and Bob Portal was one of the producers. These are all people that I admire and they're kind of, uh, we're all comrades over the years for one project or another or film festivals. So, you know, it's all about community. And usually when I'm asked to be in a movie, it's because somebody who knows me or knows somebody, uh, you know, there's some connection. That's because I don't freely put my name out, you know, as I say, with an agent and, and all of the mechanic mechanics of being a real actor. You know. Can you talk a little bit about that though? Like, is there, is that a decision you made a while back where you just didn't want to participate in that aspect of the industry? It's mostly comes from a feeling of endless rejection. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, it's a very hard, it's my personality, you know, 
uh, partly not trusting uh, Hollywood. Um, and yet I, I always say I'm also willing to make a big movie. If you want to give me a lot of money, I, I I'm also a very reasonable person. I can talk through things. You know, if I say I want to have a sad ending and you say, well, we'll make more money if it's a happy ending. I'm willing to talk about it because I like solving problems, the mechanics of, of film. And, you know, I'm willing to work with certain assumptions. So I, you know, I've had some interactions in Hollywood and it's, it's fine, but I also am very impatient and I don't really want to spend a lot of time talking about developing. And I just want to, let's, let's do the work. Let's, let's have it have a spontaneity. It's like being a punk rocker instead of writing symphonies. It's not even the quality of the music. It's this sort of attitude about how you get art out there. And I believe as an artist, you have a, a, a worldview and also a view towards craft. And that plays in different things. I play saxophone. My sax solos are just like my acting. They're a little off, uh, the spontaneous, and then let's just get on with it. You know. So what I'm saying is I'm, I'm offering the same thing in different uh, mediums. What I was thinking was like, you know, you have this, this production company, you, you've made all these movies, you know, uh, to someone on the outside, it seems like you've got something figured out, right? Like you have like some way of funding these projects, of selling these projects or some sort of secret sauce of some kind. But obviously I haven't talked to lots and lots of filmmakers. It's not that simple. You know, there's not like one thing to have to be able to make movies. So the question is, how do you do it? Like, how do you continually raise money for projects? How do you continue to output so much work over, you know, a, a period of time? Well, honestly, I wish I had the secret sauce. I have no idea. Every time I start a movie, it's like starting from scratch. It's a, it's a nightmare. Uh, I've been trying to raise money for one guy's movie for four or five years. And, you know, it's because he keeps trying that I'm there to help him but we've seen money come and go. It's, it's brutal. And that's how my Frankenstein movie, which is called Depraved was made uh, with just very, very hard. Uh, I never got the money I wanted. I never got the cast that I thought I wanted. I love my cast, but I was aspiring towards something different. I went to Hollywood. I pitched it every which way, you know, I went to everybody you can think of. So that's an example of maybe to the world, it just suddenly showed up, but it was as total struggle <laughs> and i'm very sympathetic to what people go through so very often i'll as i say i'll put things together i'm not finding the money for all these movies that that would just be hell on earth i don't even know how i've got a movie i'm going to try to make and i don't even it terrifies me but then i go back and i draw another picture and i'm like it's i i'm living in the world of the movie so there's some consolation but the the, the reality out there is so brutal i'll be honest and you know, when I was, well, whatever, years ago, starting out with people like Ty West, some of the kids that I mentored, you know, there was physical media, so you could make a certain amount of money on the Blu-ray or the DVD at that point, the VHS. Um, you could maybe do a theatrical run that would kind of almost sort of kind of pay for itself. So that was worth doing because, you know, you and then you know, you'd maybe sell some foreign territories and then you'd have the TV deal. And, you know, this was, you could put something together and now you don't, I don't know what, what Netflix, what Netflix. I mean, thank God there's shutter, but that's even, that's like one place. So it's really a difficult um, environment right now. And I'm not trying to be discouraging. Of course, I hope you're also hearing me say that it's worth making the art, but I don't have the secret sauce. <laughs> Can we talk about video games and and how and why you got into the video game industry? Yeah, I uh, was uh, hanging around as I do and somebody called and they said, maybe I could take a meeting with these lovely British guys. Um, so sorry that keeps happening. I don't know how to make it stop. I, I called them. Um, uh, I, I went and met with uh, the who turned out to be the head of Supermassive Games. And they asked me questions that all seemed to be pertinent to the Wendigo. They asked me um, uh, if I knew who Jack Frost was and what Blackwood Mountain was. And the, these are all sort of secret references to um, the Wendigo. Algernon Blackwood wrote 
uh, a short story called Wendigo and Jack Frost was a famous Wendigo hunter um, in the olden times. So I said, what are you guys up to? And they said, we're gonna make a video game and we've uh, shifted the story so that it includes Wendigos. And we thought maybe you'd be the man to talk to since you've made three Wendigo movies already. And I said, oh, good Lord. Well, that's wonderful. And then I called my friend Graham Resnick and said, Graham, do you want to write a spec script with me? Because I don't know anything about video games. And so Graham was a, he's a little younger than me. He grew up in the eighties watching video games. And, um, and so we wrote a script together. Now he and I have been pals forever. We, I've made one of his movies and he's sound design for Ty West. So it was a fun uh, collaboration. We were already writing together. And we got the job, believe it or not. So then we spent the next like three or four years writing until dawn. And, uh, you know, they would send us scenes that they wanted. And then we'd write the dialogue and we would tell them what we thought the characters should be. And we shaped it like that. And then they went from PlayStation 3 to PlayStation 4. They asked us to rewrite the whole thing because PlayStation 4 had better motion capture so that we could take some of the dialogue out and let the actors' faces uh, take over. It's almost crazy. Those are all people offering me work. Um, <laughs> so uh, that's how it happened. I mean, it was a great collaboration, me and Graham, and then also these guys who were designing the, the, the mechanics of the game. And, uh, and then, you know, wonderfully, they offered me a role. So I got to be in a movie with Brendan Malik and all those people. And, you know, we would have the red, green dots on our face and we have big styrofoam things. If you're carrying a flamethrower, well, you have a big styrofoam thing and you're in a huge warehouse and all the actors were there at once and, uh, you know, acting in three dimensions and then they're capturing our faces. So it was really uh, cool. My only regret about the whole thing is I didn't get an actual, there's no way to save my character. <laughs> I just died. <laughs> yeah. uh, everyone else, you know, you could save them by the end of the movie, but not me. My guy just gets beheaded and that's it. Sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> well, I played through that game twice. I'm a big fan. Uh, did you, you know, make so it? To, did you get out alive? I did. So the first time we killed, I think, four of the characters or five of them. And then the, <laughs> the next time we went through, we were able to save everybody, but only because we were able to like, when we would die, we would unplug our PlayStation and then plug it back in, and then we would, you, you know, cheated. get to redo it. We cheated just a little bit, just a little bit, but okay. it was, uh, it was really fun. I really enjoyed it, and the, the writing and the storytelling in that game was really well done. So, congratulations, great work. Well, Graham and I would be, and sometimes we'd even be on Skype, not even in the same town anymore because he moved to LA, and uh, we'd we'd write it. Very often, one of us would write a scene. And then we do what we call punch-ups. So we'd read back the scene that we had written on our own. And then uh, we'd sort of analyze every line so that it was some sort of pun. And the thing that's weird about video games is that very often you have to write like five different lines for a given moment and the player chooses and so on. So as you went further down, you know, into a place where most people won't even get to that line, uh, we got more and more silly. So we had a lot of laughs. <laughs> That's awesome. Like there's some real Easter eggs, you know, five in, five choices later. I have a selfish question, but I want to do a time check. All right, time, we time got, check. We got, we, got, we, got, we got time. Yeah, we got at least 10 okay. minutes before the final five. So we're good. For my selfish question. Yeah. Um, I'm going to pull an Ulrich. <laughs> Ulrich gets to do this sometimes and I'm going to do it this time. I'm making a horror film next. It's my next feature. And, um, I would love to hear what your thoughts are on what you'd like to see more in horror so that I could steal them and apply it to my horror film. <laughs> well, I would say mostly I want to see, um, real characters in presumably extreme situations. And personally, I'm not as interested in kills and gore, although when done well, that is a, such an effective um, aspect of, of horror, of course. But I also just like atmosphere and, uh, you know, the creaking tree outside and all the things that evoke um, that feeling of dread and fear, which is a very delectable emotion and really uh, not easy to capture. In fact, you can say, what horror movies do you like? Well, you might mention, you know, this or that movie that has a striking, shocking scene, but it's harder to think of movies that have atmosphere. Well, of course, the great ones do. The Exorcist 
it's more like the guy standing outside the house than her head spinning around, in my opinion. And so I don't know. Uh, so what have I said? Character and atmosphere. Well, there's not much else, but good luck. What is your story? <laughs> Are you going to tell me? Oh, it's um, it's a feminist body horror film about uh, a bunch of old friends stuck in a house together and they all die one by one. Um, so there is an emphasis on gore, but um, I love what you said about normal people in extreme scenarios. So I'm, I'm taking yeah, exactly. that to heart. And gore, of course. I mean, if you want to talk body horror, then you have, you know, Cronenberg and there's many types of body horror besides just bludgeoning. Although maybe you'll have a little bludgeoning. I don't know. Thank you. Thank you for indulging me. Yeah. So you painted this pretty grim picture of the Indian film world um, a few questions ago. And <laughs> the question is, like, Liz and I are both filmmakers. We've, I've, I'm just finishing up my first feature. She's made a couple features. Um, and the thing I keep on thinking about is like, like how, what am I going to do next? Like, how am I going to make my next movie? Is it going to be the same that I, the way that I made the first movie? And it sounds like it kind of is going to have to be, but yeah. knowing that we have to struggle and fight for every dollar, every cent, every penny, like what are things that filmmakers can be doing in order to like kind of embrace that and get their films made, you know, come hell or high water. That's what it is. You have to believe. I would say, uh, I mean, this is weird during COVID, but, you know, community is really important and, and remembering that, you know, your friends and getting together and screening movies together. Um, and it's more than just making the film. It's, it's sort of finding an audience and creating an audience and creating a community of people. And, you know, you have tools now, the internet and social media um, is another way to extend your community and and learn to work together like i always say glass eye some days i'm the boss and some days i'm literally i used to cut in ties bat shots for a movie he made years ago uh, called the roots in other words i was in his service um and if you have that attitude you sort of get the best of everybody and everybody's looking out for each other and that sort of resonated in my community of people um, sometimes they'll invite me to be in their movie. Uh, I was in Ty's Western, which was great with John Travolta and Ethan Hawke. And, um, you know, it was very sort of sweet that when he had some real money from Bloomhouse, uh, he invited me to be in the film. So there's a continuity there. So that also is like saying, just live your life well and remember your friends. And it's not all about your art, you know, but they're in fact, maybe uh, combining. So I don't know, you know, you have to, remember that success is is in the moment on the set when you're having a great idea and everybody feels uh empowered by the sense of uh creativity that's happening and that's that's a success you have to remember that feeling uh, uh, in that moment because you may not get a spirit award and you may not even get a good distribution deal but you know you have to live the life of the artist it's not easy for anyone. <laughs> and if you're lucky, you have a real job or you have somehow figured out, you know, you work in a sound studio and you figured out how to be creative and make money at it. Uh, or I'm sure you just make gazillions of dollars doing this podcast. You know, whatever you do, uh, it's all it's all sort of part of uh, your life choices. And I don't know, whatever I'm trying to be positive for a minute. <laughs> We've been talking to actors, directors, producers about what they safeguard, what they protect in terms of a production, like whether it's days or equipment or time or um, uh, teammates and having as many teammates as you can on set as both, you know, if you could speak to it, I know you speak to it from many different positions on a film set, but what do you think is the aspect of filmmaking that you want to protect when you're putting a production together? Um, the feeling of authenticity that you have to um, protect in order to have something that you're really offering in the movie. Um, but that's also very vague. That's sort of implying that you want uh, a sense of respect and quiet on the set so the actors can access something that's going to be special. Um, but also, you know, I'm a child of Hitchcock, so you also want to protect the, the creative impulses. And if you want a cool shot that's just that one shot, you've got everybody has to work to get it. 
And, you know, I would always say, make sure you have a cutaway in case it doesn't work in the edit. But basically you have to fight for the aesthetic of the movie as well. And sometimes that means, uh, sorry guys, we're gonna go a little later today. We really wanna get this one shot. I just hope you all understand. We think it's gonna be a centerpiece. It's gonna be a, you know, so it's really about uh, protecting the movie. You know, and I always say on my set, safety is first, uh, the movie is second, and feelings are third. And that's because, you know, you have to be in service to something bigger than yourself. You know, you may be jealous or you may be angry or you may be hungry or tired, but you've got to all fight for the movie. And the, the leader, the director uh, has to get the troops so they believe that, <laughs> that big lie. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like what a really great last question could be before we get to our five. Do you have anything, Liz? Uh, no, I, I got I got my selfish question out, so I'm good. Here's here's one question that I think is fun. Like, you know, you've you've done all these projects, you've done all these things. Um, what's something that you haven't done in a film that you want to do, you know, one day? I, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I like doing uh, people always say, why do you make horror movies? Why don't you make comedies? And, you know, I do think um, comedies would be fun. I would never sort of, it seems indulgent to spend a lot of time making a comedy, but of course that's a whole genre that it takes tremendous skill and, and craft. So there's something about that that's charming. I also like musicals. I don't know. It's a hard question to answer because there's so much I haven't done. Uh, I haven't made a creature from the Black Lagoon movie. Uh, so that would be fun too. Um, I guess Guillermo did all of those at once. He made a, a musical with the creature from the Black Lagoon in it. But, um, you know, uh, it's tough. One reason I produce films is that I get to live vicariously through what other people are doing. I've made uh, documentaries. Um, I have a documentary about Jesus in America, a documentary about a transitioning uh, gal uh, in Milwaukee. And these are these are things that I wouldn't maybe have the time to do on my own, but I can help produce them. And, and then I get to live vicariously and make movies that I think matter uh, in other ways. It's a big question. It's a crazy question. <laughs> well, let's jump to our final five questions. They're more, uh, well, this whole interview has been a bit pretty introspective, but we'll see how the tone changes. Uh, what's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? Well, I made a movie called The Incident at Hanley Hall. That's a movie with G.I. Joe's animated. Those are little foot tall dolls. And uh, I did the animation on that and I built the set. So how do I feel about it? I don't know. I haven't seen it in many, many years, but it's pretty funny. I also made Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde when I was, I don't know, maybe 11 and we never finished it. But uh that was a passion project. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I had some false stop starts. Uh, then I really hooked into Super 8 filmmaking and I made some shorts. And those are all oddly very much um, the same themes that I have today. I have a guy cutting someone up in a bathtub, cutting up a dead body. Uh, another one is about a car that runs over a little kid in the road. Uh, and another one is about the history of mankind ending with the bomb. So they're all this sort of bleak um, stories. Wow. When you were 12, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? I, I don't actually know the answer to that. You know, from an individual, I don't really, but uh, I would say the Hitchcock Truffaut book is a treasure for me. You know, I feel like I do receive uh, insight from reading Hitchcock and his way of describing film is very uh, beautiful and craftsman based. And yet, well, so that's my answer. It's somebody I've never met, uh, but it gives me, gives me great comfort thinking about his approach to filmmaking. Uh, do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Uh, just to be truthful and make a cool movie. I mean, it's something you aspire to the rest of your life. I mean, imagine having made Clockwork Orange or The Shining. Oops, the same guy did it. Or, uh, uh, you know, that's amazing. Or Marty, you know, imagine making Taxi Driver and King of Comedy, let alone Raging Bull. Uh, that's crazy. And I've never quite made um, an outstanding film. And so that's the goal, you know, but you make things along the way and you keep trying. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Well, maybe 
don't be such a loner. I have been a loner, even though I talk about community a lot. Maybe I don't trust people and I've been overly protective. You know, maybe I should have gone to Hollywood and tried to live in LA. And But I don't know. I'm not going to, I don't believe in regrets. You know, I have friends that regret their youth or something like that. And I, I don't think it's a, a good use of energy. You can keep building and moving forward. But uh, yeah, so I just tell my younger self, ah, buck up, kid. <laughs> don't be such a sap. <laughs> I, every, I, I guess I took everything too personally, you know. Our final question is making movies hard. Yes, it's very, very hard. And it's really hard to make a good movie, uh, but it's hard to make a bad movie, to be honest. You really have to be in the moment. Every decision, I have a friend, he said, you know, making films is making as few bad decisions as possible. <laughs> and that's pretty brutal, but there's a truth to it. It's, yeah, you just have to fight and fight and fight every uh, moment, all in pre-production, all in post-production, and all during production. So it's tough, but you know, so life is tough. <laughs> On that note, I'm gonna throw in a bonus question since we have some time. Um, you know, we, we're talking about like the, the the hard parts of filmmaking and like, you know, um, just, I don't know, maybe not being happy with your work or, or being in this down place where it's like, oh, it's, it's not quite where it needs to be. Like when you're faced with that, like feeling of, of it not being what it, you want it to be, or you're in the struggle of like, whether it's the edit or on set or whatever, like, what do you do to get through those, those tough moments where, you, you know, it feels like nothing's going to work? On set, it can be brutal because you got to do something. But I think the real thing, and this is true very much in post-production, you have to constantly be able to reinvent uh, the moment, even reinvent the mission. And trust that as long as you have sort of your heart in the right place, that maybe you don't need that shot that you thought was the most important shot. I made one film called No Telling. I had three crane shots. You can imagine what that cost. And I didn't use a single one of them. So you have to be able to look at your movie fresh with fresh eyes uh, and, and be able to think in the moment. And for that, you have to prepare outside of the filmmaking process for a methodology of decision-making that will be true to what you really want to bring to the film. And have, then you have to trust that you can change your mind. So I don't know if that's clear, but I'm saying you have to sort of prepare yourself for that moment that you're stuck by thinking about what are the real goals of this scene? What are the real goal of this movie, you know, you know, we were talking about Liz's film, you know, is it going to have atmosphere? So how do you get that if you're not able to get it right now, if it's not working out, you know, and that's true if actors can't get you where you want to be. It's supposed to be a sad scene. What are you guys doing? This is terrible. You're so stiff, you know? Well, just take a moment and rethink it. So, yeah. And, you know, as Hitchcock would say, it's only a movie. You know, you have to lighten up and, and give yourself some air. Same with an edit. Just go walk around the block, think about something else. And then you come, you know, it's that old cliche. Don't you have strange, crazily good ideas like in the shower when you least, th you know, you spend, I'm going to sit at my work table for an hour. And you're just like, Ugh! and then, you know, <laughs> you're, you're off doing something like uh, cutting onions and you're like, oh, of course, you know, so. Just be aware those moments could come. You can't control everything and try to be spontaneous and live in the moment. That's my advice. <laughs> um, I've always wanted to monetize my shower because I always feel like it is the place where I get all my good ideas. Do you use that microphone in the shower? I should, right? I should. Yeah, just it's plug very it. cool. The way you hold it, it's just. <laughs> it's because I'm too like... lazy to get a stand and I all like <laughs> Our, our three YouTube watchers are always like, we should do a GoFundMe to get Liz a microphone stand. It's true, but it's really becoming your thing. It's kind of <laughs> like the one glove of Michael Jackson or any number of other signature <laughs> aspects. <laughs> I'm not going to get a stand now. I cannot get a stand from now on. It's yeah. gonna, thank you. <laughs> no one will recognize you. What's your dog's name is the real question. Oh, Laura Palmer. Of course. Yeah. I could have almost told you that. <laughs> so, Larry, last thing, where should people go to watch Jacob's Lad Wife? 
Jacob's ladder. Jacob's wife, excuse me. Boy, I made that mistake today too. <laughs> I just watched Jacob's ladder recently. It's it's a good one. Uh, Jacob's wife will be premiering on Shutter in April. Excellent, excellent. And then if people want to find out more about you, do you have like a Twitter? Do you like have a website people can go to to check out your production company? What should people do on that? Um, my company is called Glass Eye Picks. P I X. And we're on the internet and we have some Twitter handles and all those other things, whatever it's called, Instagram, <laughs> all that stuff. But our website is really cool. And it's funny that's, you know, I'm old fashioned. So I picture the website. In fact, when I was little in the 90s, I thought this is so cool. Even when I'm not making a movie, I can kind of Twitter around on my, well, I didn't Twitter around. I mean, I can play around on my website and I feel like I'm connected to the fans. And so I was an early adapter. And now, of course, everyone's doing it. But my website is unbelievable. You could spend days and days there looking at all the old work and then all kinds of weird details about things. Awesome. Or you can do something more worthwhile with your time. (laughs) (laughs) So, Liz, what did you think about uh, our conversation with Larry? I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I could have talked to this guy for hours. I loved it. As I told you after we chatted, I think I inadvertently flirted with him because I was so like bemused by the whole experience and just, yeah, yeah, I loved it. I um, got swept up. Uh, He's just so, you look at him and you're like, oh, you're a hard worker and you have like a passion inside of you for filmmaking. And I think that even though he's like very low key, you just see his commitment and his um, his energy for for what we do. So I just really liked that. Yeah, it was um, it was pretty amazing, like how many things he's done, and then like the answer he gave, which is like the same answer to the question, like how do you secure your projects? How do you make your movies? It's like I don't know. Every time it's different. Every time it's like <laughs> crawling up a hill, and you know, it's just as hard the last time as it was the first time. And it's like you know the same thing you hear all the time from filmmakers um but it's just crazy that like yeah you know this guy's made so many projects and it's still the same deal you know it never gets any different never better yeah and i also remember the other thing that stuck with me that i think about a lot is that how he said um that there may be hurt feelings on a film set which is so counter to the narrative that I try to write for my film sets. I always go like, no assholes. We're going to try to make this as fun as possible. And then he (laughs) was just like, there will be hurt feelings and we're going to put the film first. And part of me thinks he didn't say this, but part of me thinks that he's speaking to egos and not a lack Mm. of collaboration, but maybe that Mm. he's just trying to, stave off the idea of egos taking over a film set which i think is really smart right or, or maybe both you know because yeah. like like everyone you know we're all artists right and especially when you get into like the creative roles you know and there's a lot of creative roles on a film set i would argue almost all of them are um <laughs> yeah everyone has an opinion everybody has a an idea or something they came into that they were excited about and then if like the director you know, to the DP says they don't like this or the DP to the gaffer says they don't like that or the, you know, whatever. Um, Even the DP to the the production designer, like, you know, like, oh, this doesn't work for the shot. You have to move this prop. And the production designer is like, oh my God, like this is the perfect place for this prop, you know? Like there's all room for all kinds of stuff. And then that's not even counting, like, you know, the personal angst that could happen on a set and the talent too, of course. Because they're also artists, you know, and like the most vulnerable of all of us because they're burying their souls on set. So, yeah, I don't know. It's very interesting. It's a, it's quite an amazing thing to make a movie. Um, you know, I just worked on my friend's uh, horror short uh, as like a, one day I was a camera operator. One day I was a production coordinator, you know, just sort of helping out um, a few days. And uh, yeah, man, it's nuts. Making a movie is crazy. You know, even when you're just with a five or six person crew, I think we had four people one day. Um, you know, two actors and you're trying to get this thing done. It's just like, holy moly. But um, it's also special, you know, because now we have this thing, this this little crazy horror story that we're going to get to show people. It's nuts. Um, but yeah, I think it's time to move on to uh, this uh, crazy soap dish thing. I'm Lori Craven and I'm an actress. An actress, really? How nice for you. I'm Betsy Faye Sharon and I'm a bitch.
I don't even know if this is appropriate for soap dish, but I, I, we don't have another segment that seems more appropriate for this. So we're just going to go with it. Um, so this week we have special guest AJ Starzak, which is an amazing last name, by the way. Holy shit. Um, to talk about his upcoming short film, My Monster and I, which is currently raising money on Indiegogo right now. So without our interjection, here is AJ to talk about his film. Hi, my name is AJ Starzak and I'm the writer-director for a short film called My Monster and I. My Monster and I is a 15-minute sci-fi short film about a 10-year-old Asian-American girl named Sydney Lee who confronts the monster under her bed and uses her newfound bravery to face her abusive father. My Monster and I was roughly inspired by my life as a kid when I was, you know, like too afraid to you know, sleep in my room, I was afraid of the dark, and I was always afraid of what I might see under my bed. And so I wanted to write a short film that was kind of about that and answers the question, what would happen if I saw a monster under my bed? We have Delphine Huang, who played the young Milan in the recent remake of the Milan um, Disney movie. We also have Berkeley Pickle playing monster, who has such a big background in playing monsters and using his deep voice, and so we're really excited to have him as the character. We have a really great diverse crew. Katie Williams is cinematographer, Tim Molina as production designer. We have a guy from Legacy Effects uh, named Jacob uh, Ronhaus, and he's gonna be putting together the practical suit. Mitch Reeser as our VFX supervisor, uh, taking the lead in the VFX side of things. You know, a great production team. So I'm really excited to work with everybody and kind of put this project together. Right now, more than ever, you know, people need to be reminded that they're not alone and that they have nothing to be afraid of. We can all stand together and we can be one as a community and kind of support each other. You know, that's what this project is about. You know, about this girl who's, you know, facing the monster under her bed, but then she ends up befriending it and then they work together to help her um, face her own problems with her father, her abusive father. Our budget is $50,000, but we also have a B budget of $15,000. But of course, like all the support that we can get from anybody was just going to help us out and bring this project together. Um, please donate to our cause and in any, any amount helps us just to kind of bring this project to life. Um, if you could donate to our Indiegogo or even just share the link and, and help us spread the word and to reach out to other people, I really appreciate it. We're just a bunch of artists trying to create and uh, I really appreciate you helping us trying to express our voice. Uh, give us a follow on Instagram and be a part of the journey. So Liz, I watched this crowdfunding video and you know, I, um, you know, we, we both have worked on crowdfunding campaigns. We've both done it. I've done it for shorts. I've done it for, for my feature. You've done it for what? Shorts and features too? I was a crowdfunding consultant for three years and mm. uh, managed our relationship with Kickstarter. And then I've done three crowdfunding campaigns myself for my projects. It's fair to say you're pretty much an expert on crowdfunding. I was. <laughs> I don't you know don't think I you are anymore. anymore? I feel like it's been a few years, but um, I certainly have seen my share of crowdfunding videos. So what was your takeaway um, from watching this crowdfunding campaign? <laughs> I love uh, I mean, I wish everyone could hear the backstory before we recorded this podcast. Um, so there's something very interesting about me talking first. Uh, but I would say what I liked about the video is that I got a sense of AJ's personality. I think he seems quirky. Um, I think animation is really like... A lot of animators that I've spoken to are actually, it's really hard for them to do self-promotion. It's really hard for them to do performance. They do animation because it's a more intimate controlled environment and it's like more isolated. So I would say, while I got a sense of AJ's personality, um, I didn't get that like direct appeal. This is why I made this movie and let me cut to the core of my heartstrings, you know, like tell me in a vulnerable way while you're making this project. So I would say, well, it looks like a really great project and I'm definitely love that we're supporting it. Um, I, I would, I, yeah, I want to hear more from AJ about why domestic abuse 
um, and why short film rather than feature? Like there's a lot of questions that are unanswered right now. Yeah. So I basically felt similar. I mean, I, I guess the animatic was a nice way to start the, the video because it just brings you into something creative right away, which I think is really important. Like a lot of these videos start with someone talking um, to camera or, you know, just like, hey, I'm blah, blah, blah. And here's why I'm making this movie. But I feel like you really want to drag people in with something that's a little bit more, I don't know, like, yeah, I guess creative or a little bit more, uh, got more edge to it. That's like part of the storytelling because you're basically raising money to make a movie, to, to tell a story. So you should use your storytelling within the video in order to bring people in to wanting to, you know, support your storytelling. It just makes sense. So they, he did that. And I thought that was great. Um, where there's a couple things where I don't think he really sat with me very well. Like I think the music choice when they got to showing the animatics was like bizarre to me. Like, you know, if, if you're gonna be making a horror sci-fi film, like you want to set the tone of the whole thing around horror and sci-fi like if you're playing this like this really great classic oldie song over these you know chilling and scary images of animatics that's supposed to show me why you can make a horror sci-fi short drama whatever you want to call it um it just doesn't it just puts me completely out of it like i completely get disconnected from what's happening mm. um and then, so that was one thing. I mean, it's not a huge thing. Like I can let it go, but like the thing that I really like to see in all these um, crowdfunding videos is some examples of your filmmaking experience, you know, and some visual examples. Like I think visuals are so important. And so I'd love to see like something that AJ has made before. And if this is AJ's very first thing, he has never made a film before, then he, I would like him to speak to that. And then, you know, talk to, you know, why this is such an important story for him and why we should help him make this movie as his first movie, especially at such a large budget of um, $50,000, you know, because that's a lot of money for a short film. And, you know, there, there should be a good reason why you need that 50,000 and why you should convince us that your 50,000 is, is needed for it. You know, not to say that I don't think this is worth like, you know, putting your money in and I would definitely support this, this project. I just feel like there's a couple things that, you know, we could use to really crank it up to like get us to really be interested and engaged with this, this project. Yeah. I think when, um, what I always say is when you're crowdfunding, um, you are selling yourself, not necessarily your project. I notice when I give to a crowdfunding campaign, I'm not like, oh, this project looks so cool. I want to see it. I'm not. I'm not. I'm very impatient. So I'm not going to like fund something that I'm not going to see for two years or maybe never. I'm going to fund someone who really wants something really badly. And then my $5 or $10, or if they're very lucky, my $35, which is like my highest tier of donation. Oh, wow. Um you know, that it is meaningful to them. So I agree with what you're saying. Like the heart of the video is not a hundred percent apparent right now. Um, and yes, you, you do need to tug at the heartstrings of your network because the majority of the donations are going to come from your network. That being said, AJ does share some personality in the video and maybe people know him as just like this adorable, quirky, talented artist. And so I think they're going to come forward to support him. But um, but for those who don't know him, yes, context, your resume, filmmaking examples um, could all be really helpful. Uh, yeah. And I, you know, I would go into it, but I'm not going to go into it because this is not a crowdfunding segment. But we do wish AJ the best and we really do want people to invest their time and energy into him. So please, if you have any money, send it to my monster and I. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm looking over this again and they actually have some pretty cool perks here. It's mostly digital. They, they, you know, which is like our advice of what we've said before in the past mm -hmm. is like digital's best. Cause then you don't like put yourself in a hole with all these practical perks. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, one of the things that he has in here is a two uh, inch 3d sculpture of the monster. So like, I don't think he talked about any of these perks in the video. So I would love to have hear, heard him talk about the perks, you know, so like we can just, it, it just kind of helps connect it. Cause like I, I had to click on each one to, to open them up. And I feel like getting that little like audio and visual yeah. uh, tease of the perks is also helpful too. Um, 
But yeah, I totally agree with everything you said. It's really the personality. And I mean, that's what I tried to do with my crowdfunding campaign was just to put all of myself out there as much as I possibly could. And then also just over communicate to the audience. Like I would send a video almost every day. Like I think I did like three a week sometimes of just like, you know, updates of like what's going on and, you know, special video thank yous. Like I I would do, I did a video thank you to every person who um, contributed. And I feel like that really helped, you know, uh, and then I also doubled that up with a thank you on um, Indie or Indie on uh, Seed and Spark, and then also a thank you on social media. Um, so I feel That's like all it. those thank yous are really crucial. And he might be doing the thank yous. I don't know. I haven't I haven't contributed yet. I probably will. Um, but yeah, in, interesting. You know. Yeah. Unsolicited advice is like I at least I do, and I think I represent at least one percent of the crowdfunding uh, community. I often give money just to get a thank you, to be super <laughs> frank. I I will do it just to get the thank you. And I remember all the campaigns where they didn't thank me and they were friends. <laughs> they didn't thank me. So I'm just saying like, AJ, your producer, Samantha, make sure you do what Ulrich did and be, you know, that gratitude is actually why some people donate, which I know sounds crazy, but some of us just want to be appreciated from time to time. <laughs> Also, they put in their copy, Samantha sent over the copy to add to the to the thing that's put on the website or whatever, that um, the, the star of this movie is Delph, Del, Delphine, Del, Delphine, 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 Del, Delphine, yeah, Delphine Hung, Huang, Delphine Huang, probably, who stars uh, as young Mulan in the Mulan movie that's just on Disney Plus. So it's like, holy moly, they didn't talk about her at all in the, the, the crowdfunding video, I don't think. Um, so that's a pretty big thing that, um, you know, I would love to, to be included in the video presentation. Maybe it just happened like after they recorded the video, but I would definitely make a big, big deal about that. Cause that's huge. That's huge. That's exciting. You know, hundred percent. Anyways, this is obviously a very, you know, promising project and it's got a lot of great things going for it. So I hope you guys check it out. I I'm going to keep following them and checking them out and support this project myself. Um, so yeah, anyways, hope this has been helpful and, uh, AJ, Samantha, if you hate us, uh, let us know and, uh, we'll read your hate email or whatever you send on the next episode. Um, you know, if the, if this critical, if this unsolicited feedback is too much for you or if you didn't, um, appreciate it. Ulrich, 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 you've got mail. My breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You've got mail. But yeah, we do have mail and we have YouTube comments and here they are. (laughs) There's a lot. I've tried to figure out if I could like curate these because there's like actually a good number to read. Um, I don't have to read them all. I just put them all in there. Oh, okay. Um, I'll read uh, one from my favorite account, All the Dead Boys, who comments on episode 304 with Sana Sony. So All the Dead Boys says... Uh, major points to Albrecht for reframing Sana's filmmaking advice. We've all heard a version of this advice so many times. I know I have. Yes, making movies is hard, but it's even more difficult when you've got people around you saying you should only be making movies if you can't do anything else. The last thing we need as indie filmmakers is more people telling us no. And then uh, in the parenthetical, All the Dead Boys says... No disrespect to Sana. This was a great conversation and she had lots of insightful things to say. And then there's an adorable smiley face. Um, we ran into this again with uh, Nitsan Mag. I'm not going to do it. We ran into this. <laughs> we ran into this another time with um, Nitsan, who we interviewed just a few days ago uh, about if you could do anything else, don't, uh, don't be a filmmaker. And um, I, I noticed you you uh, were ready to respond to that as well when she said uh, that. I just was like, you know what? I'm not going to do that again. I, I feel like I felt like a jerk for saying that because like, who am I to tell Sana what advice to give or what was her best advice or anything? You know, I mean, I just I don't I don't know. I just don't like hearing that anymore. But I mean, I felt like an ass because she can say whatever she wants. Like if that's her advice, that's fine. You know, I, I don't have to take it, but um, yeah, I just don't, I don't know. So I, that's when, when Nit, Nitsan said that I was like, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just going to l- let her have her advice. <laughs> well, but you, um, you know, all the dead boys 
just really wish I was saying a, a name instead of the phrase all the dead boys. Um, but this person who likes to be called all the dead boys uh, agrees with you and appreciated you kind of weighing in. And I think that's that has value. Uh, yeah. Ultimately, I think I actually fall in line with more of Sana and, um, and Nitsan because I'm just like, why? Why do we do this to ourselves? <laughs> I, I think actually it's like filmmakers are masochists is what I think. And I think if we could choose anything else, we wouldn't because we're masochists. I, that's mm. what I think is the character flaw for all of us. But <laughs> Interesting. we'll see how people react to that. Um, what else do we have, Ulrich? So then our good old pal, Gary Kennedy said on the same episode, zoinks! Julie was incredible in Mel and Ruby. And then you responded for reels, which I thought was very charming. Um, So yeah, and it's true. I mean, man, she was great in that movie. Julia, Julia Manis was amazing. And oh, Julia, he said, Julie. Yeah, I'm not gonna. Yeah. Uh... (laughs) Gary, we're coming for you, Gary. You you got her name wrong. How rude. Julia. (laughs) So apologies, Julia. Um, And then, um, on the episode with Dan Mervish, my co-writer for my horror feature and good friend, Amy Taylor, AKA Walkin' Candy Apple, comments about how uh, that best original musical story is wild. And I feel the same way, Amy. And I genuinely think if Dan Mervish hasn't made a documentary on it, that we should all implore that he does, or all we should all make one on it. He told <laughs> yeah. the best story about um, having to make a really bad German musical in order to have another of his films nominated for an Oscar in a defunct best original musical category. Oh my God, Dan Mervish, you're a great storyteller. Um, um, yeah, yeah. One more, maybe one more, one more. And and then Drew Pierce said on the same the same episode, he just says, "Awesome interview." Thanks, and Drew. for you, those who don't know know who Drew uh, Pierce is. Um, yeah, he is a very talented filmmaker. Uh, the Wretched uh, did all kinds of crazy things last year uh, during the pandemic, like grossed a million dollars uh, when theaters were all shut down in theaters. So amazing. Um, I think we should leave this last one from Gary Kennedy. Do you want to do it or should I do it? Um, you do it. So this is also on the Dan Mervish episode. Uh, Gary says, got some real knowledge bombs from the interview with Dan <laughs> regarding the short My Guy Thursday. I'm a real sucker for black and white, even though some turn up their nose to it. Liz, sorry to hear you had to drop out of the feature, but if it isn't fun before you even shoot, then it isn't a good sign. Ulrich, my comment on pimples and nipples was meant as a dumb joke followed by a compliment. (laughs) Sometimes things don't come across right through text. True, true, so true. And then Liz, your confusion asking Ulrich if he knows who I am made me laugh. I mean, I, at this point, we have to have just a segment called Talking with Gary Kennedy because like, that's like literally all we do every single episode is talk about or talk to Gary Kennedy. Well, we have a lot of other great comments on our Barbara Crampton episode, but we will save that for next time um, unless we have more important things to do, which we sometimes do. So yeah, anyways, thanks guys for uh, indulging us. So if you want to be like all the dead boys or Gary Kennedy or any of the commenters, um, please do write a comment on YouTube. You can head over to our YouTube page, which is now over 210 subscribers. Super exciting. Um, you could support the show on Patreon if you'd like. www.patreon.com slash podcast. Give whatever you can. We appreciate everything. Um, everything at all. We'll send you thank you notes. We'll say thank you for your donation. Uh, and if you want to send a question, comment, or suggestion, please do to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. We haven't had one in four months. And or any of the places you can leave reviews for podcasts. And finally, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast. And of course, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. And thanks to everyone for listening. And thanks to Larry Fessenden and Priscilla Rios uh, from KWPR for making this episode happen. You guys are awesome. Priscilla is just like the best. She sends us the best guests. Anyways, um, as far as Liz and I are concerned, you can find me at Ulrich B on Twitter and Instagram. Liz, where are you? I am at Liz Manischel on Twitter and Liz Manischel Film on Instagram. And you can check out our website at makingmoviesishard.com where, I mean, if I updated the damn website, I haven't updated it in like four weeks. I, I swear to God, one of these days, I'm just gonna sit down. I'm gonna do like four episodes in a row. I did that last, like a month ago. So you still should go there because you can learn learn about things on the show, but you will not find this episode on there quite yet. Soon, soon it will be up. Um, and thanks to me for editing the show. 
I'm finally editing an episode after having Cameron do like four in a row because I've been so busy at work lately. That's why the episodes are not on the website. I'm just so, so slammed. Um, but, uh, but yeah, thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, yeah, talk to you guys next week. But I think enjoy the conversation with Larry and Liz <laughs> raised her finger like she was going to say something. Oh, um, I think they, I hope they have enjoyed the conversation with oh, Larry. Oh, right. Exactly. Um, okay. So, so Liz, I watched this crowdfunding, crowdfunding video one more time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.